This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 280 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and I'm in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, for this episode and for the next couple ones, in fact. Um, joining me for this episode is John Sherry from Little Cottage Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The next few episodes, we've got a whole range of interesting brewers doing a whole bunch of different stuff here in Atlanta, uh, and I thought it'd be fun. I mean, we're going to talk about lager brewing with some other folks. I bet you can guess who. Um, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different kinds of you know beers. But I thought, uh, you know, there's this little, this small brewery, and I do mean very small brewery here uh, in Decatur, making some very highly rated beers that uh, a lot of the beer traders out there in that world of uh, stouts and whatnot are seeking out. And uh, you know, it's Little Cottage. You guys have made a name for yourself. And certainly, I mean, the, the the there's a decent amount of hype out there around it. Um, as I was doing some of my research, 4.19 average on Untapped. Not that no, that's the end all be all for anything. Um, one of the one of the you know leading breweries rated by and I shouldn't say I should say breweries on Untapped because if you go look for the top rated on Untapped, you got to like filter out all the meteries to get to you know the real breweries. Like for some reason. Everyone who drinks meat, like it's, you can see that bre- that beer fans in America, in particular, love sugar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just by the way that they rate rate meteries. Anyway, if you filter out those meteries, I mean, you guys are really, you know, very significantly in that place. Not that you watch that. Not that that's the goal. A um, right. year and a half ago, you started this brewery here, and you know, surprisingly enough, you make a lot of very small, very uh, you know, uh, drinkable beers that are meant for a taproom audience. We're going to talk about doing that. Everything from Brewing a three percent milk stout with coffee on nitro, like the one that I'm drinking now, to brewing big pastry stouts. You do it all in a three and a half barrel system. You're doing it in a very manual, uh, very workmanlike way. Here, yes. we're going to talk about all of those things. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer: GND Chiller's new microchannel condensers. GND's microchannel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. GD Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipes and make a non-alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? And a no problem, the Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? Check out www.probrew.com to learn more about the Alchemator from ProBrew or shoot them an email to contact us at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. So, John, as we always do on the podcast, try to like first walk through your arc in brewing. Talk to me about uh, what that looks like from that kind of aha moment with craft beer uh, to your entree into home brewing and then uh, deciding then that you wanted to make a profession out of this. Yeah, so started off with uh, just a little pot on the stovetop, uh, yeah. like a lot of home brewers did, I'm sure. Um it was a Father's Day gift from my wife, and uh, ever since the first and second batch we did, uh, it was my brother-in-law and my younger brother and I, and uh, yeah, 
kind of got hooked on it and um, just continued in to drink other craft beers along the way and finding inspiration and wanting to try new things out um, myself on the systems and stuff like that. And just doing that long enough that I started finding myself uh, volunteering at other breweries and talking with other brewers and getting, you know, little tidbits of information. Every time I had a chance to volunteer at a brewery, um, it was great because there was a little brewery um, called Burnt Hickory Brewery in Kennesaw uh, where I kind of, that's where I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, their system at the time was very small and it, sure basically it was like what i was using at home and i was like ah i can just take <laughs> those things this, right? i can apply everything i'm doing here to what i'm doing at home i was still at the time learning like how do you do all grain and stuff like that where do all these flavors come from so it was like continuously tasting grain to know what each of those grains were going to give you sure and then just going home and brewing like two times a week or three times if i could make it all fit and i was yeah, I was brewing a lot, uh, but <laughs> it was all so I could like get the beer better and better every time. Sure. Um, when was what we were around? What time was this? Like, um, so I started home brewing in 2012, um, and then I think 2013. It was either 12 or 13 that I uh, won a competition, and that's where I met some uh, another brewer and started volunteering at a brewery uh, as much as I could. Sure, so. sure, got excited about it. Uh, 2013. That was a great year. In fact, this episode uh, is going to air on the December 16th, uh, which is in, in fact like the exact to the day nine years since we started working full time at Craft Beer and Brewing in December of 2013. So this nice. is our our ninth anniversary of uh, of Craft Beer and Brewing magazines. Anyway, an auspicious Congrats. year <laughs> there in 2013. And uh, yeah, yeah. So 20, so you're home brewing and you get a chance to now like, you know, not necessarily apprentice, but volunteer, kick in, start learning from, uh, you know, from professional breweries around you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And along the way, that was also during the time when, I mean, it was the whole, I don't know, hop war, if that's the right term, but everybody sure, was IBU like, wars. yeah, like who can make the uh, 100 IBUs or whatever. Right. And it was like. <laughs> It was a thousand IBU. It, it was ridiculous. Record from Green Flash, yep. 150 IBUs. Yeah. And my brother and I would just like go grab these beers and drink them. And then after we drink them, after a while, it was like, you know, I can't taste anything after this. So um, I think we're going to stop drinking the IPAs for a little while <laughs> and start working with uh, some other stuff. So that's kind of actually how I got into brewing stouts yeah. and drinking more of those and learning, like, you know, what does make a good stout and things like that. Um, and, and he was a trader too, right? You, you guys started. Yeah, he he was into beer trading, and so he would share whatever he could get with me. He was doing and some R and D for yes, you, yes, on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> so th those were all good things to sure, see sure. see what other people were doing, and then just continuously brewing and trying to figure out like how do I get it you know, more viscous and all these other things. And, um, and then I got into barrel aging not too long after that, um, at my house, Even at home. I would get like little eight gallon barrels or 15 gallon barrels and fill those and just kind of started off with that. And it just, that's kind of when it started turning into like people like 
there were already some friends wanting some of the beers I was doing, whether it was an IPA or something else, and they would share it with other people. And so the word was getting out there a little bit, um, but then also getting to pour at other places like that place that I volunteered, Burnt Hickory. Um, I got to pour there um, within that first year of me volunteering there. And so people would come and drink this stout that I made and they're like, it blew them away and sure, i was like sure. oh cool okay i think i'm onto something and i'll just keep working at it and making it better and better each time but uh the barrel aging part was a lot of fun to me but also uh, there was no way i was going to drink all that so it was like <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure so i would bottle it up and i would uh email people and say hey i have these bottles ready if you want them come get it and so after that it was just it was easy because people they were dedicated to it, and they just wanted to come keep trying it and sharing with other people. You and built the brand as a home brewer, and uh, right. you had inbuilt supporters then for that. And you got to, you know, you got to test and, uh, uh, I mean, you had a whole, you, you could focus group that kind of stuff on folks that, uh, you know, and make some changes and find the things that worked, find the things that didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, especially at that time, like, you know, I look back at, like, Stout in 2015 and even Imperial Barrel Age Stout versus where it is now and it is a completely different beast now seven, oh, yeah. seven years in you know versus uh you know what would that kind of like bourbon county you know mean or norm you know right. maybe in 2015 uh and and before that uh you know so talk to me about some of that evolution and we can talk about big stats we're gonna talk about small things too all you know because uh, i think that's one of the interesting things like i said at the top the interesting thing about your brewery is that it's not just it's not just these things. Like right. you, you, you make a lot of smoked beers because you like drinking smoked beers, like, like yeah. making a lot of small English style beers because those are the things you like to drink. And so we'll talk about some of that too. But talk, let's talk about this evolution of, of stout as you made it, um, and uh, you know this kind of the I should say um, this increasing viscosity of, of stout, and then the in, increasing uh, intensity of flavor that uh, you know that beer fans and drinkers of that um, started to begin to prize, you know, say 2015, 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how did that brewing evolve then for you as you were brewing these things and barrel aging them? Um, yeah, so I, again, it was during the time that I was volunteering at a brewery. So, and because I was learning the all grain process, I found, so actually my first recipe, I think it was a, uh, is it BYOB site or something like that? They did like some kind of anniversary stout yeah. that had the recipe online. I took that recipe to uh, Will, the guy I was working with, and I was like, hey, this is what I want to do with this beer, but I don't know what all these grains do. I'm trying to create like a <laughs> sure, cho sure. chocolate imperial stout. And like, what do I need to do? And so he started going over the list with me and be like, okay, I would remove that. I would add this and like change the percentage here. And so all those things, like, even though I didn't understand it right away, I slowly started to get it and taste those grains as I was using them and started making sense. So I would just keep playing with that same recipe and like, okay, now, now that I've got it kind of down pat, how can I make it, you know, a little more viscous because it was i wouldn't say it was thin but uh as you were saying things over those years started progressing from you know bourbon county being good enough well it still is a good beer but sure. uh to you know oh i want it thicker and <laughs> all this other stuff and sure, sure so you know it was 
tasting more beers along the way and being like, oh, okay, well, how did they get this thicker and like reading about boil times and all these other things. And, um, I mean, all those things really help the boil time included, but, uh, yeah, it was, you know, you've got your unfermentable sugars and stuff. And that is something that if you didn't know, is kind of out there that, um, unfermentable sugar, it's, you know, gonna leave it less dry and more sweet and, um, uh, eventually lead to a thicker body and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, uh, you know how you do some of those. And when I say this, like you are brewing on a three and a half barrel system. If you are making these big, thick stouts, like it's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in order to do that. Um, and so you you have to have a lot of intention to what you do because uh, um, you are sweating, you know, and double mashing in order to. You know, I mean, it's not like you've got an oversized mash ton in in this system in order to make stouts the way that some other brewers now have been designing their systems in order to do that. So let's talk a little bit about that before we do that. Is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates but at a better price point and with more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's bestsellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with quick six- to eight-week lead times on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft and cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about brewing big stouts on small systems and, uh, you know, achieving that kind of viscosity. And, and of course, we'll also talk about how you amp up flavor in that uh, down the road. But let's talk about building that kind of body. Obviously, you know, you started one place, you ended up another. Um, what does it look like right now for you as you approach Imperial Stout? What do you, you know, if you're thinking about putting a stout into a barrel, you know, what is your what are your parameters? What are you shooting for? And what do you find now? Um, you know, in terms of built the, the base recipe, you know, it creates the right kind of beer to become the thing that you want it to be after it goes through this kind of process. Right. Um, so basically all my recipes have pretty much stayed the same from when I was doing it at home. Um, uh, I just keep all the grain percentages the same, but learning the, I think the hardest thing for me was, uh, learning the bitterness level because it wasn't balanced really for me it was you know i was getting sweetness up front and then on the back end getting bitterness and uh found out that basically i was doing the hop addition a little too soon um and so i had to change that um but that was really the only that was a learning curve but also um yeast fermentation sometimes it would attenuate great and um you know, finish where I would want it. Other times it would stall out on me and I couldn't do anything about it. Um, so at that point I would just figure out, okay, well, what do I need to do differently? Um, sometimes I would just pull some of that off and, you know, 
too thick, too sweet, but I can rebrew it, do it better, get it drier, and then I can blend back with it. So um, I do some blending here uh, when I need to, um, but also, you know, because we are small, you know, you want more volume. So it's like, okay, well, what can I do with, I've got this one sure, half sure. barrel keg here and I've got a little over here. What can I do like to yeah. maybe pull them all together and so taste through it and see where the different flavors are and which percentage of what you want to use. But sure. it's fun. What does your base recipe look like? Yeah. Um, you know, what do you shoot for? How do you describe it in words? And then, uh, you know, are there some specific malts that you tend to lean on that uh, add the right kind of character and support? Uh, you know, uh, again, I don't know, I've, you know, if you think about it in terms of like building a spectrum or hitting some specific notes. Yeah. Um, um, so I do have like, uh, at this point, it's probably over nine different uh, stout recipes, but that's also kind of why I really like brewing stouts because sure. there's all these different flavor elements that I like to use and mess around with. Um, but I'm also Let's real. Let's pull that apart and see what some of those different things are. I'm, I'm curious about that. It sounds so interesting. I've always used like Maris Otter as the base malt yeah. uh, in a big, whether it's a barley wine or a stout because uh, it has more complexity to me than just two row or something like yeah. that. Um, so that's always been a big thing. What would um, you say it adds if you're thinking about how that, how the difference in that taste comes across or the, the difference in how it functions? What is uh, what would you describe it as? Honestly, <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know. It's sure. I know it's more complex compared to the two row because two row I taste that and it just tastes kind of bland and like yeah. nothing going on. Whereas you taste Maris Otter and there's, there's just a little more complexity going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, same with uh, I did a recipe um, where we used uh, Golden Promise. Um, yep. Did that and uh, that was fun to do, but. That also has another type of complexity on its own. Um, so that was a fun one that I did. But uh, things like um, Munich, uh, adding like a little bit of a raisiny character, things like that to it, but not too much. And then there's other stouts where like I do want a raisiny character. So I would use something like Special B to add that raisiny character yeah. to it. Um, as far as like, you know, chocolate or roast, you've got roasted barley, but you don't want to use too much of that. Um, cause then it can get really bitter astringent. Um, right, right. uh, I like, uh, things like pale chocolate, um, uh, use a little bit of carafa too, but very low percentage again, cause you don't want it to go too far, uh, as far as being tannic or astringent. Yeah. So. Um, and then of course add a little bit of dextrin or oats, uh, again, not every recipe is the same, but those are things that sure. are going to add more body and stuff like that to it. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, uh, in general, like for the dark grains, it's usually a mixture of roasted barley or, um, uh, some chocolate, some, uh, carafa things like that for the color. And then it's just a matter of like, okay, what, what other flavors do I want in here? Um, actually the last two beers that I did, uh, I started messing around with taking half the Maris Otter and splitting it with two because the more I thought about it and I don't have evidence yet, I'm waiting for it to finish up. But the more you think about it, you have a lot of specialty malts in there. So are you, 
you know, using more, you know, Maris Otter is not cheap. So, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. especially with grain prices these days, but, um, you know, is it getting hidden by all these other specialty malts that you're putting in? And so this is kind of an experiment for me. I think it's going to work out good, but. You think you might be able to split the difference between your, your Maris Otter based malt and some, and some standard two row. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, as you, as you think about like, what are the general parameters of it? Where, where do you hope? I mean, and I assume you're fermenting with, you know, like a Chico or American ale yeast of, of something like those lines. Yeah. Uh, anywhere from super San Diego yeast to, mm. um, sometimes it's just, uh, the safe ale 05 stuff. Sure, um, sure. I've gotten those up to like 12 and a half percent. Yeah. Um, but and they attenuate great. Dry, so, every, a lot of people are using dry yeast yeah. just because you know it's it's an yeah. inexpensive way to get a big yeah. enough pitch to actually ferment these things, right? right. Yeah. yeah. And anyway, you know, as a business and thinking business minded, anyway, you can like try to at, cut costs without cutting quality or anything like that. It's very smart to do. So I've been doing that more often with the dry yeast. Sure. What do you? Uh, yeah. And then what do you hope to? like say for a uh, a beer that's going to go into barrels what's your goal for a gravity is it, you know finish uh, finished gravity as it goes into barrels and then uh, where do you start in order to get there um so each one's going to be different but as high as uh, i don't know i'd have to pull it out to tell you plato but um still using specific gravities uh sometimes so yeah uh as high as, as high as eleven eighty, and mm-hmm. then sometimes it's more like eleven forty five, but always you know up in that range. Yeah. Um, so, and then of course finishing. Usually, I'm trying to get it down to ten sixty, but it's not always going to come down that far, especially yeah. when you're starting that high. Um, so realistically, a lot of times it'll be like. 1070, 1080, um, finishing, uh, which, you know, some of the, what I had read online when I was, um, home brewing and inspired by other people's beers was three Floyd's dark Lord. And somebody sure. had said something about taking a gravity reading and it was like around 1070, 1075, something like that, if I remember right. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Well, if I'm going there, then where do I need to start and all this stuff. So, Things like that help me when brewing. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we've we've got a story on barley wine in our new issue, and uh, the uh, on black barley wine, and the one of our beers of the year this past year was a pulpit rock beer. And when uh, we <laughs> we realized that the finishing gravity was twenty three play doh, yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's something. There's a feat right there, right? Like, how do you make a beer with a finishing gravity? Of, or it was twenty two point eight play doh. Uh, you know, that high that still tastes balanced. You know, like there is an art to balancing a beer right. at that realm in that realm. And that's I think that's an interesting thing, you know, to talk to. So maybe talk to me about like how, you know, then do you think about bitters? You mentioned, you know, hopping in that and the timing of hopping, you know, because you want to create this kind of cohesive feeling of bitterness, but you've also got, you know, that roasted barley that's adding bitterness, uh, you know, and also potential astringency, but really more, you know, that kind of roasty bitterness, the perception of roast also contributes to this idea that people have of bitterness itself. And so, you know, that plus hops, 
you know, you have to just kind of think in this multivariate equation as all of these things are kind of feeding into that. And then you also want to think about that perception of the sweetness because there's different things that produce different ideas and feelings of sweetness within a stout like right. that. Not all sweetness is the same sweetness. How, how do you think about all that? Um, so like you said, the attenuation, the bitterness from the hops, as well as knowing the grains, what the end result is going to be with the roasted grains. Um, I mean, it's just some stuff that I kind of figured out at home and I just kind of continued to do it here. And I know like, uh, for instance, Carafa, I don't really want to go above 2% on that. Yeah. Um, because it can get to be too much. Um, unless, you know, you are going a little more classic traditional than sure bump up the carafa and the roasted barley or whatever. But, uh, if you're, you know, trying to keep it a little sweeter, but not like over the top sweet, then back off on that percentage. Um, but obviously you need it for color. So sure. There's no avoiding it. You just got to figure out how to get that in the mix with the right percentages. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, you know, as you're designing stouts, especially for barrel, you're also thinking about adding adjunct ingredients, which can also at the end bring their own sweetness. Does that impact the recipes that you then brew for those kinds of things? Do you, do you work, which, you know, how's that creative process work? Do you, you brew a recipe with the end thing in mind, or do you then brew it and then, you know, think about that, you know, think about other ingredients that are going to complement the beer that you have. Yeah. Both um, of them are valid. It's, just, it's interesting to see how you work. Yeah. So typically I do know what the beer is going to be. So for instance, we did one <clears throat> with Mostra. It was a milk stout, a big milk stout. Uh, I think it was 13% if I remember right, but I knew it was going to be sweet um, and viscous, but the idea behind that was to add cinnamon and coffee to it because Mostra, you know, coffee yeah. roasters. Got to have coffee. Um, so the inspiration was like a Vietnamese type of coffee um, when they use condensed milk and we just used the lactose for that. But yeah. um, knowing that I was adding both coffee and cinnamon to it, I knew that those would cut the sweetness of it or help cut the sweetness of it. So I wasn't too worried about it being too sweet on its own. Sure, it is too sweet for a lot of people um kind of <laughs> right. depends who it is there's you know we see some people that they'll drink a cup of sugar <laughs> but um yeah for somebody that wants things more balanced thinking things like that um another one uh, example would be coconut um coconut is benefited with sugar so if you have a sweet beer then it's gonna let that coconut shine more otherwise that coconut just seems kind of muted and just not really there you yeah, know it yeah. doesn't really hit the same way i guess so it is a funny one i think and i i mean we've been uh we've been working on reviews in this issue on hard seltzer and i find the same exact thing with fruit you know that uh when you go really dry on a hard seltzer, which creates the thing that with low calories that a lot of people want, like it becomes really hard to sell the fruit idea. The fruit flavor is there, you know, that right. it's just without the, the sweetness to go along with it, it doesn't taste the same. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think you, what you're saying is exactly the same in this kind of scope with coconut, like unsweet coconut doesn't taste that great. <laughs> and it's not something that like, you know, you can have that. It's not, it's not a, right. something that most people want to consume. And so, um, but that sweetness helps sell the bigger idea of coconut. If you're going to spend all that money and put it all in there, yeah, you want people to feel it. And also these, a lot of these are, you know, kind of, I guess, 
dessert beers or dessert inspired things. So it's like, okay, well, in the end, when, when was the last time you had a unsweetened coconut dessert? Um, <laughs> right, so, right, right. um, if you think about it that way, then, you know, it makes sense. Uh, I guess part of all this thinking is I, I used to love cooking. I don't have time anymore really to cook, but you know, tasting things, uh, desserts, I always love desserts. Uh, so, you know, knowing how these different desserts taste and things like that and like, okay, how can I incorporate that into here? How can I achieve this? Um, and there's things that I'm still like learning and trying to figure out, like there's another beer that I want to do that involves toffee. And I'm trying to think like, okay, what's the best way to put toffee in there? Do we just throw toffee in there? <laughs> like, so right, right. every everything we do is not just like, hey, throw everything from the kitchen sink or fridge in there, you know. Um, it's more like, okay, what is inspiring this? Where are we trying to go with it? And like, which flavors do we think are going to really work well together? And also at the same time, you know, I've had this conversation with other brewers where it's like, okay, we're doing a collaboration. What do we want to do? And my biggest thing is, I just don't want to do the same thing over and over, but eventually you are going to do some of the same things over and over, but, you know, try to stay away from like doing coconut and vanilla, like every single time it's like, all right, we got to think of something else. Like what else can we do, you know, to keep it interesting and, you know, different. So. Yeah, tell Kyle from Horace about the, that, you know, <laughs> can you make anything that doesn't have coffee in it? I don't know. I don't know if it can. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I'm sure it's possible. Yeah. I'm sure it's possible. Um, let's talk a little, I want to come back to and talk about the how you, you know, divine, uh, decide on and build adjuncts, but also add those ingredients in the ways that create compelling flavors. Because, you know, some of this stuff is normal, but clearly the beers you're making are not just normal. Um, there's something to it, but let's talk a little bit about fermentation, you know, first, uh, you know, obviously these are challenging beers to ferment and, you know, is there anything that you do to make sure that, uh, that fermentation happens in a healthy way and, uh, produces the kind of flavors through fermentation that you're looking for here? Um, making sure the yeast is happy and healthy. It's going to want to die because you're giving it so much sugar all at the same time. So, um, if you can do, you know, more than one pitch, if you can add a little more oxygen in there to, you know, keep it healthy, um, those things help. Sure. Um, sure. temperature as well matters. So especially coming toward the end of the fermentation, bumping that temperature up yeah. will help to kind of drive that down more. Um, but other than that, uh, sometimes it's just a pain and <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. What kind of temperature ramp at the end of your fermentation does it look like in order to, to kind of keep it running at the end? Um, so most stuff I'll start off around like 68 degrees yeah. in there. And then toward the end, I'll bump it up to like 72 or so. Um, we have a walk-in cooler with some plastic tanks and there's a little AC unit in there. And so if I'm doing something in plastic, that's, that's a little harder because I have to keep an eye on that constantly. It's not like it's running through the glycol chiller and I can keep it cold or whatever. Um, so I have to, and of course seasonal, like right now it's getting cold here in Georgia. So yeah. I have to keep an eye and make sure that temperature is not going to go from 68 all the way down to like 64 at night. Um, so, you know, it's possible I might have to plug in a heater or roll that plastic <laughs> fermenter out yeah. into the, uh, into the brewery to keep it a little warmer. Um, but things like that, uh, it's just 
so much easier in the stainless. Just. Sure, sure. So, you know, anything else to that that kind of fermentation piece? You'd use enzymes at all in order to, um, you know, make sure that things finish where they want, or is is that then dry things out too much? I uh, use new yeast nutrient in the yeah. boil, um, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, do you, in order to, again, promote that viscosity, you mentioned doing double boils, you know, in order to get a really thick, you know, uh, starting gravity on this or using, you know, any other, uh, you know, elements in order to kind of promote that viscosity through this process? Um, no, besides the double mash and just boiling a long time, typically, if I'm shooting for something more traditional then i'll keep it at say 90 minutes to three hours maybe but if i'm doing a big imperial stout that i know is going to go to a barrel or something like that yeah it's going to be a minimum of six hours but sometimes up to like eight eight and a half hours yeah. um after that i'm running short on volume of what i'm going to get out of it so i kind of call it quits after that <laughs> That is a tough thing. So you do all this work on a double mash, and then you boil the crap out of it. And then, uh, you know, because it's a small system where you're, you know, you end up with a, not a lot of beer. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, you got to love it and be willing to do this. Uh, it takes a long time and a lot of work, hard work. <laughs> sure, so. sure. Well, let's talk about adjuncts. Before we do that, ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter, proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project abs commercial we are brewers also you have a small brewery but have plans to grow it you want a canning line but not sure if you should wait until you're bigger or start now several years ago twin monkeys debuted the world's first production level nano canner to help small breweries get into canning now twin monkeys has created the eagle an expandable nano canner that can grow as your business grows find out more at www.twinmonkeys.net Financing options are available. So let's talk about adjuncts. Yep. Adding flavors, you know, into beer, obviously the, into these imperial stouts is a big component of this. Doing it in a way that creates compelling and not just you know cloying or uh, you know simplistic uh, kinds of approaches. That you know, doing it in a way that creates beers that people want to seek out and trade for and uh, you know go after. You know, that's that's uh, that's another thing entirely. So talk to me about your process in. Uh, and building these ingredient forward imperial stouts. Um, yeah, so kind of what I was saying before about trying to come up with ideas as far as what goes with what. Um, vanilla bean and, you know, can pretty much go with anything. It's just so easy. It's kind of like using citra in every IPA because citra goes great with everything. It just it helps every IPA. So, <laughs> um so like vanilla bean, but I also try to stay away from using vanilla all the time, uh, even though I love it. It's just another sure. thing like, all right, let's be a little different, like not keep using the same thing over right. and over. Um, also, vanilla beans are not cheap. So uh, trying to find other ways, other things to make that beer interesting. Um, but things like uh, I haven't used, I have used peanuts. Uh, I've used... Um, uh, we did one that was hazelnut. Um, so I actually have one coming out this weekend that's uh, called Christmas Land. It is vanilla bean, hazelnut, coffee, and coconut. Um, the idea behind that was when I was growing up, my dad liked this 
coffee from this coffee roaster called Barney's. Yeah, terrible coffee, but the coffee was called Santa's White Christmas, I uh, think. You know what? I grew up in uh, Winter Park, Orlando, Florida, and uh, we had a Barney's, Barney's Coffee and yeah. Tea. I, you know, yeah. yeah. It was called uh, Santa's White Christmas, if I remember right. Okay. And looking on their site when I was homebrewing and my brother and I talking about that coffee in particular, um, I saw that it said it had these notes of hazelnut and vanilla and coconut and that. And I was like, well, I'm not going to use the coffee. I'm just going to make that thing like with sure, those sure. notes. I'm just going to take those ingredients and put them together. And yeah, that's how you can I create came. your own roasty notes with, yeah. the, with the barley itself. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's how I came up with something like that. Yeah. Um, so well, how do you, you know, do you, so how do you select the you know ingredients that you're using in them and how do you find high quality ingredients that then convey well within a beer? And then what kind of techniques do you use to add them that, uh, you know, that makes for well-balanced, interesting extractions, you know, like you know, you've now put so much manual work into making this like 90 or a hundred gallons of beer and you're at the very, you're now at the stage where you need to add things to it. It's like, you can really screw it up at that point. And then, oh, yeah. then you can ruin all this work that you put into the, this thing, you know, getting to that point. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of pressure to that and you want to, you know, make something compelling. What, what are some of the strategies that you use around adding those ingredients, selecting those ingredients, et cetera? Yeah. So sourcing is different. I've kind of found, uh, things, for instance, if it has coconut, uh, we have a farmer's market locally that will go and we'll get like big boxes of coconut because we can save a little bit of money that way yeah um typically it's unsweetened coconut uh because the again the beer has enough sweetness in it that sure uh, i don't have to worry about that so i've also like gone through the process where we've toasted it and then we've also done just raw coconut and um uh actually the christmas land bottle that i was talking about is raw coconut there's no toasting in it yeah um toasting will add another element but um that's a whole nother thing, but what do you uh, like about raw versus toasted or, and what it, what are the challenges that come with that, that toasting? I mean, I know um, a lot of folks will toast in order to try to drive off some of the oil using yeah. raw coconut means you got a lot of oil. You also have a, you know, an ingredient that you're now adding into this finished beer that, you know, may not be, you know, perfectly aseptic. Um, you right. It could potentially bring in a, some beer spoilers with it. Yeah. You know, how do you manage around that kind of thing? And that was something I was very concerned about when I did it, but I've done it a couple of times now and it's worked out. And I've also talked to other breweries and no other breweries have done a mix of both even. Um, so it was just a matter of like being more comfortable with it um, and not freaking out about it because I used to freak out about everything and like <laughs> sure, sure. I, I, we have to put that in the oven we have to bake it and make sure like anything is baked off of it and like yeah. that way we know everything's sanitary um, there's still some of that like for instance nuts you do want to toast the nuts because it brings out some of those oils and flavor and that um, instead of just letting it be a raw peanut or hazelnut or whatever yeah. um, so the toasting on some of that stuff is beneficial um, coconut like you were saying it leaves some of that fat content in there uh, without toasting it so that was kind of the idea behind this one to leave some of that in there huh. um, why, why leave but, some in there on purpose that's interesting just to add even more to the mouthfeel really oh okay um that was my thought behind it yeah. anyway yeah. um 
as far as like how I put all these ingredients into the beer. Uh, in the beginning, it was a pain because what we were doing was hanging a big old sack in the fermenter and then pushing the beer into the fermenter so it could sit there on it. Uh, that was a pain and did not always work right. Uh, you got all these expensive ingredients and now you're creating a giant clump in your tank in the inside of a bag. We ended up buying a hot back. uh, So it has a false bottom. And so I'll clean it, sanitize it, and then we'll, uh, seal it up, purge it, um, uh, after putting the ingredients in there. Um, and then basically just push enough beer in there to fill it up and then once i have it filled up it's a matter of giving it the time it needs to sit on those ingredients um not all ingredients are going to be the same some are going to be quick some are going to be longer so you just have to give it the time it needs Uh, do you recirc or do you you through it or do you then load in and create a high uh you know a more like a you know intense extraction that you then blend back in how do you so i've done both it it kind of depends what it is um for instance, if it's coffee, I don't bother recirculating it because I know it's going to be done in enough time right, that right. a few hours later I can taste it and I'll it'll be about time to pull that off the coffee. Um, you know, you let it sit on coffee too long, it's going to be too astringent, bitter tasting. Sure, so, sure. Um, tasting things as you go along is important, just like you know, a chef in a kitchen. Sure. Um, so when I'm cycling, I'll have like a little. I'll have a valve and then I'll have a um, little sample valve on there as well. And I'll open that up as it's circulating and just taste it along the way because it could be a few hours. It could take a whole day or two days even uh, recirculating on those adjuncts. So it's just a matter of giving it time, tasting it as you go along and just knowing when to stop, when to add more, whatever. Yeah, what works fast and what works slow? Uh, how do you you know balance timing on some of these things? Uh, vanilla beans, I don't like to rush it, so yeah. I'll usually push the beer on there ahead of time and just let it sit. Um, if I have time and don't need that hot back for a while, yeah. I'll let it sit for a month if I can. Oh, wow. And then I'll pull it out, taste it, Um, and then I'll try to recirculate and I'll see, okay, well, did that increase the vanilla at all while I'm sitting here recirculating or does it taste the same as it did before? And then just decide if I'm wasting my time or not, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty much that way. Vanilla gets its head start. Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty much that way with all the ingredients. If I have the time and don't need the hot back right away, I'll let that ingredient sit there. If it's something like, you know. Uh, as I then, said, do you do it ingredient by ingredient then and say, Hey, I'm going to add the vanilla now. And now I'm going to add this, or do you then, you know, combine some of those things? Um, most of the time the vanilla would be ahead of time yeah. uh, because I like to give it more time. Um, coconut doesn't need quite as much time. And uh, that is something that I'll recirculate on. Um, and then something like nuts also, if you have a day or two to let it sit, then let it sit. Otherwise, recirculate that, and you can usually get that within like a few hours. But again, there's no like strict timing on those kind of things. Yeah. But something like coffee or say cinnamon, you can go way too far if you let it sit too long. So yeah, just yeah. knowing those ingredients and knowing you don't want to let it steep too long. So. Sure, sure. Me maybe pull back out and ask like, what do you? What do you think is the thing 
about your stouts that have made them so exciting to people. What do you think, you know, one of the differentiating pieces to what you do um, or, or some of those, you know, are there, is it small things? Is it big things? Is it, you know, what is sort of that piece that you think makes your, your beers distinct and unique and it makes them so attractive to people? Uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, well, that's fair. I, that's fair. I, I just, I'm just doing the best I can. Yeah, and yeah. like, if, if it's not good enough, I'll, sit there and think, okay, how can I make this better next time? Or how can I make it better now? You know, what can I do to change this? You know? Um, but yeah, I, I'm very picky about my stuff. So yeah. I, I'm not like, Oh yeah, I make this great beer or whatever. I do appreciate the people that love it. Um, I appreciate <laughs> that they like it. Um, but you're and, still not happy with it yourself. Not all the time. Sometimes I am. Sometimes there's just little things like, I've had barrels where I tasted it and I was like, I don't love this because there's this like char finish on it on the end. And I don't like that, but it's not the beer. It's the barrel. (laughs) I can't do anything about that. And so, you know, these things like I overthink things a lot. And so it's best just to not think about it. (laughs) Is that best? I don't know. I mean, I think that's interesting. I I mean, I think there is some benefits to never really being happy with what you do. I'm, I'm, they're never happy with any podcast that I go back and listen to. And I have to listen to all of these. Yeah. Um, and I second guess what I say, you know, in the same kind of way, because when, when this is our thing and this is what we do, like you should be your own worst critic. Right. I mean, yeah. who else is, uh, you know, that, that should be the thing that drives you. And I mean, never being able to achieve the perfect thing is kind of the creative driver that keeps you wanting to make something and do it even better right. and get better at it and keep pursuing it. Anyway, uh, you know, I think that's interesting, but yeah. uh, when you figure that out, let me know let (laughs) me know let's talk about uh you know smaller beers and smoked beers and i think that's one of the interesting things that i found when popping in here that uh you know what the broader world of beer thinks of as little cottage i mean most of them probably it gets filtered through the hypier things and these kinds of stouts to get high ratings and everything but it's really that's a small part of what you do and a bigger part of what you do is making things like this three percent coffee milk stout um you know that's a regular beer here on nitro uh making small english style beers making a lot of smoked beers smoked porter uh was a smoked doppelbach or smoked you know you've got a, a number of different smoked beers you'll have playing with which can yeah. be a polarizing style too certainly right. not necessarily the same exact venn diagram market as sweet pastry stouts right. for those smoked beers um you know talk to me a little bit about uh, your approach to making you know smoked beer in particular so for the smoked beer uh there was one that i had done um again home brewing and it was basically just a riff on that to do a a, a porter that had some smoke in it um and is it alaskan brewery uh yeah, what brewery alaskan is it? smoked porter yeah i had had that years ago and i remembered it and things like that just kind of stick in my head that you know something that inspired me and um want to recreate something similar um so just took a porter recipe and added some smoke malt to it i like the beechwood smoke malt because it's a little bit lighter on the smoke and not so aggressive yeah. uh, like roush or peat or anything like that yeah um so it's a way to i don't know it's kind of fall makes me think like sitting outside by a fire or something like that um uh as far as the uh 
the smoke dunkle that I did. Um, dunkle, I, not Doppelbach. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> as far as that one goes, we weren't, you know, it might seem like I love smoke a lot, but <laughs> really it's just, we wanted to play around with our dunkle recipe and something that some other breweries have been doing the past couple of years is like a smoke tellus, which I thought was really cool. But I didn't want to be the same and do another smoke tellus, so I just decided to do that with a dunkel instead. I yeah. thought it would add a little nice character to the dunkel. Everyone wants to make their Schlenkerla uh, smoke tellus take, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're using beechwood smoked malt, how do you how do you you know say take a porter recipe and uh, you know add that smoke component to it? What's your process like? So it's going to be like a little bit different as far as percentages. Um, yeah. Some of that is dependent on the ABV. If it's a higher ABV, like if you're talking a 13% stout, uh, that smoke malt is not going to be as much there. You can go 11% and it's still yeah. not going to be like as aggressive as what you might think. But if you put that 11% in a like 4% or 5% little beer, it's going to, be like aggressive in your face yeah. um so, I, love, I love smoked malt because it's it's like it's not linear you know right. like it's not just uh you know i add a little bit more and i get more smoke flavor like there is a threshold of smoke where you is you know i mean you can brew a you know very high percentage smoked malt beer and may not you know it doesn't taste exponentially smokier yeah. necessarily and so there's something that works in this kind of threshold way across that so anyway it's interesting you know so you're saying you try to keep it down in the low double digits yeah so like on the dunkel because that beer was going to be light and i knew it would attenuate more and things yeah, like that yeah. trying to be thoughtful of those things i think i i think i kept that down to about four percent on the dunkel uh whereas the smoked porter i think i was around around like seven or eight percent on that so as you get bigger you know add yeah. more to try to push it a little more There's otherwise still very it's gonna get kind of cautious levels of uh, of smoked malt it's, right you're not going all in on the smoked malt on these right yeah yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think I have read some stuff where people are using higher percentages on yeah, some of this stuff. Yeah. To me, I like smoke, but I don't like it <laughs> that much. Okay. Uh, okay. Are there any other recipe considerations that you change if you're, uh, you know, if you're, say, uh, taking it into the smoke, smoke realm? No, I think that's really all I've played with. Um, I do like smoke character. There was another stout that we recently did with someone. Um, where we were using some guajillo and cascabel chilies and the guajillo chili to me had like a smoky component to it so rather than use smoke malt i just kind of let that guajillo chili do its thing and it had like a little bit of a kind of raisiny smoky a uh, little spice to it character um we even put some cinnamon in there to complement those chilies it turned out yeah. really nice yeah cool um what's your favorite beer to brew and what's your favorite beer to drink Favorite beer to brew would have to be a stout. I just love the recipe formulation. Like I yeah. said, I have I don't have one base recipe that I use across the board. I like to create new recipes, and even lately, the collaborations we've been able to do with people has been interesting because we are like sharing back and forth. Like the, here's what we do, and this is what they do, and it's not always the same. So it's a learning process for all of us, I think. Um, so that is the most I guess fun that I like to do. Um, 
but again, it is a labor of love and you have to be ready to put some time and stuff like that into it. Um, as far as what I want to drink, I uh, typically it's a four or 5% lager Pilsner, uh, but no particular one. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just like them. And you do make them here despite the very small tanks that you have to, to make these beers with. Right. We're limited on our space and everything. So it's usually one logger at a time. Uh, can't tie up the tanks too much. Sure. Sure. Well, let's zoom out a little bit. What, uh, what's the big picture look like? You know, you're a year and a half into to little cottage as an actual commercial brewery. Um, you know, people were probably familiar. You, you would, you know, they knew your homebrew before that. They knew, you know, uh, so, you know, but year and a half into the business, you're still figuring out what, you know, what this business is ultimately going to be. It's still early days for any kind of business. Right. I knew, you know, we didn't know what our business was going to be a year and a half into our business. So we had an idea, but, uh, you know, certainly it's gone in some different directions since then. What, what is the, what's the big picture look like, you know, for little cottage? What do you, what do you hope to be? five years from now what would you you know like to be doing what would you like to be known for what's the vision for the business where do you hope to end up so i mean even before opening my vision was i didn't want to be too big i i would rather have like two separate places and two separate cities and keep both of those places like say somewhere between a seven and a 15 barrel system or something like that um rather than go big and distro everywhere although right now in the state we're in distro is working out for a lot of people uh rather than the tap room um but i don't know hopefully that changes it back again yeah. the way it used to be but we'll see um you know i hear brewers telling me like before covid happened like this is how tap rooms used to be it used to be great and now it's down and people are sending more beer out and so I wouldn't mind, you know, of course, revisiting that in a year or two. It's just a matter of kind of seeing how things change and the climate of the situation. Um, as far as what I'd really like to do, um, you know, I have these ideas all the time. One thing I wanted to do before opening up was to also have a coffee roaster. Not that I know about roasting coffee, <laughs> sure, but sure, sure. I do love coffee and I thought it would be cool to have a coffee roaster, which some breweries do now. Sure. Um, I thought that would be really neat and you could have people come in in the morning, drink coffee and then right. nighttime people come and get the beer. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of, you know, see as we go, we're still building the brand name, uh, building a community here. Uh, people are still finding out about us, you know, locally, um, and it's just a matter of trying to like keep pushing it until more and more people come. Uh, we're seeing new faces all the time, which is great. Uh, and not everyone hates it, which is great. Uh, <laughs> there are people that uh, just do not like the music we play, and yeah. Um, but luckily, it's not very many. So you staked out a, a you know kind of aesthetic or that's a little bit of metal uh, your daughter though is the artist that does uh you know that kind of art for you and uh you know making it a a very family affair here right yeah uh, my wife helps out with the books uh because i don't have time to think about sure, numbers sure. and stuff while i'm brewing so uh, i am lucky to have both of them uh as well as a good gm and 
uh, great assistant with me. Uh, yeah, every, everybody's making it work. Well, fantastic. I think that's a good place to bring this to a close. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions and use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. ProBrew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brew to the next level. Think outside the puree box with craft concentrates from Old Orchard. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country. And Twin Monkeys continues to push the boundaries of what is possible with their packaging solutions. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast and all the others, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. Let us know this content matters to you. Um, buy that subscription for a friend this holiday season or treat yourself. Either, either way. Um, John, if people want to learn more about Little Cottage, where do they find you? Social media is probably going to be the best place for that. Uh, we do try to keep our website updated, but social media is usually the best place to have the most current information. Sure, sure. And if they want to come visit the tap room and brewery? Uh, yeah, we're here in Avondale Estates, uh, 120 Olive Street, Suite 500. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me about brewing. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.